0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Out, brought to you by Countryside Mobility, an initiative which, just like this podcast, is all about helping people to access the great outdoors. Join me as we travel to the southern tip of the Cotswolds and discover a small slice of America. Travel east to discover how groundbreaking research is opening up the countryside and find out more about how the charity behind Countryside Mobility is transforming lives. So, grab your boots and join me for episode two, as we step outdoors. Now, although Countryside Mobility is primarily based in the southwest of England, I thought, well, this is episode two, so it's time to stretch our legs a bit. I thought we'd head east, to Suffolk in fact, and speak to a good friend of mine, David Falk, who just happens to be Green Access Manager there. So welcome, David. Hello. How are you, Neil? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, David? How's Suffolk?
1: Suffolk today is... It's gorgeous. It's the blue sky, the sun's out, it's warm outside. Uh, From the uh, environment of my garden,
0: (laughs) because that's about as far as I can go, uh, it looks lovely. Uh, Give us a sense of whereabouts in Suffolk you are. It's a a fairly big county, so just paint a picture for us of whereabouts in the county you are.
1: Okay, so Suffolk... Suffolk is quite an interesting county. You've got sort of three zones to it, and I'm in the uh, eastern zone. So the eastern side of Suffolk is the coastal strip and a little bit of hinterland. And then there's the market town of or the county town of Ipswich. And I live just six miles south of Ipswich itself. Then as you go west from me, the middle part of the county is sort of a landscape, a rolling sort of gentle landscape uh, with some really ancient medieval villages and towns some fascinating sort of old churches. And then the far west of the county is an area that's called the Brecks. And you get into a landscape of uh, vast forests of pine trees and sandy soils and heathlands. So it's quite a diverse county
0: in terms of landscape. Brilliant. You, you've sold it to me. Although I have to say, I already have a very soft spot for Suffolk. Uh, my, my grandparents uh, lived there, so I used to spend um, my childhood holidays in Suffolk. And, uh, and of course, we first met in Suffolk where, when we both worked at the East of England Tourist Board. I know, all those years ago, Neil. You were there in the early 2000s, was it? Uh, Late 90s to early 2000s, before I headed to Central Asia, but that's another conversation. (laughs) Inside Out is not going quite that far east. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, tell us about your your current role. Um, Green Access Manager, is it? Yeah. So it's yeah, Green Access Manager.
1: It's it's an interesting title. Um, And my job is to Look at um, opportunities to improve access So that might be building a brand new footpath, a brand new bridleway, or it might be taking an existing right of way and making it better so people can use it more easily. Um, And then the promotion side is working um, with a lot of villages and community groups to create walking guides and cycle guides. And then every year, albeit not this year because of the coronavirus, but every year we put on the Suffolk Walking Festival, uh, which is quite a big event that we do as well. So and then I do a lot of work with media and people like that to promote Suffolk as an easily accessible destination for walking, for cycling, for horse riding. So, yes, it's
0: interesting. It gets me out and about a lot, which is good. I want to hear more about that in a moment. But I just I mean, I guess the thought that comes to mind immediately is that Suffolk is a a very rural county. Um, I think that's what most people's perceptions would be. So I guess you would think, well, there's not that much to do in the sense of helping people to access the countryside. But are there barriers that, that, that stop people from making the most of it?
1: It's, it's, this is a really interesting one because in in this job I I sort of I go out myself and enjoy the countryside in my way and so it's very easy to then extrapolate that experience on onto everyone else and think well if I do that why doesn't everyone else do that so <clears throat> to help me in my job um, I've worked closely in the last what five six years now with University of East Anglia and we're looking at what those barriers to countryside access have been so what stops people going for a walk or a cycle ride in the countryside. And there's loads of barriers. And what's interesting is that sometimes those barriers are not physical, they're psychological. It's the psychological fear of getting lost, the psychological fear of trespass, um, even the fear of not knowing, <clears throat> excuse me, if you, if you enter a field, if there's wild stock, um, you know, if there's animals in the field, horses, or if there's uh, uh, cattle and the fear of danger and that sort of thing. And those are, those things can really play on people and prevent them from, really exploring the wider countryside. So my challenge is then to try and show places that you can go where you'll still find the car park, the toilet and the tea room. So very often with the walk leaflets I produce, we base them from a pub because the pub offers all of those facilities very,
0: very good <laughs> and does that mean that you have to test out the pubs David? well uh, well yes of course
1: because <laughs> because well i mean there's two benefits there one is is that you're promoting um a walk where there's easy parking and refreshments and stuff but b you're promoting the local business which is good but yes in, invariably uh in scoping out these leaflets i will often you know obviously go to the tea room go to the pub and explore those but it's really good because then you get chatting to people and i, I don't just go in and, and have a drink i mean i go in and talk to the landlord or talk to the cafe owner and there's a real joy actually that there's a real thrill working with communities on developing these leaflets and promoting the local businesses you meet the most amazing characters and interesting people doing it which is really fun but yeah but that's the challenge is you know going out you think oh it's easy just go out for a walk but actually there's a lot of reasons why people don't
0: so are there are there particular are there particular groups that you would say you're wanting to particularly encourage into the countryside more that you're working with initiatives to, to do that
1: a lot of my work is it is about targeting more disadvantaged groups who perhaps don't traditionally go into the countryside whether it's because of ill health or uh, some social reason or perhaps uh, a sort of uh, a gender, not gender, but an age reason. So, for example, um people, sort of our generation, or and mm. older, are very used to going into the countryside because we did it when we were young. And people, young kids today, don't access the countryside as we did. They, you know, so much, uh, I think people play a lot safer these days. They don't, they're not used to going to mm. the countryside. So it's, so working with school groups and community groups, we're trying to sort of open up the countryside to those people.
0: Yeah, I guess one of the hopes of a of, of silver lining at the moment when um, opportunities for leisure are more restricted, that one thing that I think I've seen when I've been walking very locally is that there are lots of families out walking at the moment, perhaps who wouldn't have done that in the past, and hopefully that will be something that they'll have been introduced during this time and want to continue on from that. You're right.
1: You know, when I've gone for walks around the village, um, there's lots of people out and about walking. I'm forever passing people by, and everyone's moving out your way. It's all very courteous and very nicely done. Yeah, people are really exploring, and and I think that's really good. That's really good that the people are discovering, you know, the footpath networks on their their doorstep and uh, discovering what's around them.
0: Absolutely, yes, no, I've certainly discovered one or two myself, and I think lots of people are discovering those those footpaths which are local to them and realizing they don't have to necessarily travel you know in a car for half an hour and they can find something on their doorstep.
1: yeah, and I don't know like, like probably similar to where you are there's a ama- you know on your doorstep, there is the most amazing history I mean Suffolk's full of as I said before medieval history because of you know we were occupied by anglo saxons and and uh, there's lots of very ancient villages here. And that results of very ancient buildings and very ancient churches. And just where I live, you can do a short walk. And you, in that walk, you go past a medieval church. There's an old red barn that was built in Henry VIII's time. There's a moated farmhouse that looks like something from a uh, sort of a storybook or something. There's a mock castle. Uh, and there's these cottages that look like Hansel and Gretel cottages. This is just this most amazing history. And I've actually worked out... This is, this is a funny sort of uh, effect of, of, of shutdown, as it were. But by doing local walks, I've suddenly realized I can do a really good little short um, three pub pub crawl in the, my village that I didn't realize I'd never sort of lived together. It, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really, and I just, it made me think, oh, the next time we have friends or family over, rather than t- getting in the car and driving to a destination and we'll have you know morning coffee in one lunch in the other and afternoon tea in the third
0: <laughs> and it would be really fun well i'll have to plan my next visit to yes. you david to <laughs> test that out do that do that we, yeah we could
1: test it we could test it makes see if it works <laughs> be perfect very good
0: well i guess the, the final thing i wanted to ask you is is really what you enjoy most about your job but it sounds like you have lots of fun <laughs> Well, what do I enjoy, I really
1: enjoy meeting people. That's absolutely fascinating, and um, and exploring the counties and that. And the walking festival I do is a joy. It's every every year when we when we do the festival, albeit we won't be doing it this year, but every other year when we've done the festival, it's a real joy uh, in May to meet all the walkers again, and and uh, we're like a big family. So that's there's a real joy in doing that. So yeah, there's lots of different interests there. There's a, there's not necessarily one best thing, uh, but there's lots of different bits to the job which are really fascinating and interesting.
0: Well, thank you again to David and thank you to you, uh, any returning listeners uh, who tuned in to episode one. It's been great to see people listening from around the country and even Perth, Australia. Um, Please do help spread the word. Probably the easiest thing is to direct people to our website, which is insideoutpod.com. That's insideoutpod.com. And there you'll find links to all the different places where you can listen. And it has its own player there um, if that's easier. I'm pleased to say that we're now registered with most of the main podcasting services, so if that's the easiest place for you, uh, then do search there for Inside Out Countryside. You should then find us. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe and to leave a rating or review. Now, as you may be aware, Inside Out is brought to you by Countryside Mobility, which is an initiative of the charity Living Options Devon. I thought it might be useful to find out a bit more about the work of the charity and how countryside mobility fits into that. So uh, I got in touch with the Chair of Trustees, Andrew Barge, and I started by asking him how the charity first came into being.
2: This year, actually, Neil, is our 30th anniversary. So uh, if you do the maths, the charity was founded in in 1990 by uh, Peter, who is now the Deputy Chairman the, the aim of Living Options is to improve the outcomes for people with disabilities and, and the deaf community as well. So we're very much about accessibility, whether that's accessibility to services, to opportunities or literally just accessibility to the outside world as well. And, and lead in a, a you know, fruitful role in, in society in terms of employment and just enjoying the opportunities that life uh, brings to people.
0: And I know from my work with Living Options that there's a huge variety of different projects which we haven't got time to do justice to. I really would suggest people have a look at the website (laughs) and and see the the breadth of of different work there. But I I guess one thing I'd wanted to touch on really was some of the unique and distinctive way in which Living Options work. I know that it really puts (coughs) the users of the services at the heart of it. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, so, so the ethos of um, Living Options is that uh, in terms of our structure, we aim to have about 80% of uh, the trustees with lived experience of a disability. I think 70% of our volunteers and a third of our staff have disabilities or are deaf. Um, so we are very much a, a lived experience organisation, if you like, and, and we involve those, uh, those people, uh, volunteers and, and service users,
0: greatly in terms of the development of our work. And obviously this this programme is particularly focused on the countryside and countryside mobility. How, how does that particular project fit into uh, the charity?
2: Well, as I said earlier on, um, we are very much about accessibility. The countryside mobility project is, is a fantastic project in terms of allowing people with uh, physical disabilities who may not be able to get out and about. I know from my own experience, how uh, wonderful that can be in terms of just lifting your spirit and, your, and improving your mental health and, of course, obviously, improving your physical um, well-being as well.
0: Yes, I do remember I, I remember you having a go on one of the trampers once.
2: I did, yes. Um, I did at uh, Castle Drogo, indeed, the beautiful Castle Drogo. And uh, I went out and used one of the trampers, and uh, it did really sort of open up a, a part of that uh, estate that I wouldn't have been able to access myself with my own physical disability i would have just looked at it from a distance but not been able to get up uh, close if you like to some of those uh, beautiful sights and trees and and shrubs and things like that that uh, as i say an able-bodied person would be able to do
0: brilliant well thank you ever so much for giving us that insight Andrew. it's been really helpful to provide a bit more context behind countryside mobility so thank you for joining us this morning okay thank you neil Now, in our last episode, we enjoyed a little interlude thanks to a field recording of a dawn chorus. We're going to hear Birdsong again, but this time in a musical setting, as we listen to a perennial favourite, Spring, from Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Now, one of the joys of the British countryside is that you never quite know what's around the corner. If you're visiting the Georgian city of Bath or the rolling hills of the southern Cotswolds, then you might be a little bit surprised to stumble across a small piece of America. One of our most recent partners is the American Museum and Gardens, and I recently spoke to John Ducker, head of visitor experience, and asked him how this Anglo-American combination came into being.
3: Well, the only museum of um, kind of Americana um, outside of, of the US. The museum was founded by two, they were kind of antique dealers, collectors, um, and they, they wanted somewhere to, to showcase their own collections, but also describe to uh, people in Britain that America was much more than cowboy films and Hollywood. And it had its own... It had its own history and how that was intrinsically linked to Britain. So they set the museum up in 1961. Um, they found Claverton Manor in 1958. So in that very short space of time, they shipped across many, many things from America, including interiors of houses which were being demolished. Um, and then they they kind of retrofitted Claverton Manor with all these um, period rooms. So there's a, there's a tavern there's somebody's living room, there's a very fancy parlour, but then they also see a kind of horticultural history outside in our recreation Mount Vernon garden and in the the kind of new contemporary modern uh, American gardening in our new American garden.
0: It's a fantastic location there at uh, Claverton Manor. Do you want
3: to describe a little bit about the setting there? We are, we're, we're in Bath but not in Bath. We like, like to be the kind of hidden gem. Ho- hopefully not too hidden though. Um, so we are we're just on the rise of the Limply Stoke Valley. So we're just skirting an area of outstanding natural beauty, just below the University of Bath. Um, and so Claverton Manor is built in about 1820, uh, and it's it's a really wonderful location because it's got these amazing views, but really simple access to to Bath and via the year 36 towards uh, Warminster, Salisbury, that, that sort of way.
0: Great, and you've really been investing in the uh, garden element of uh, the attraction, haven't you?
3: Yeah, the, since the museum was founded in, in 1961, the gardens have always been quite an important feature uh, of of trying to tell the history uh, and the social history of, of America. But in 2018, we launched the the new american garden and a, a refreshed mount vernon garden after quite a major fundraising campaign predominantly in the us but some some money from some from some generous friends here in the uk and we worked with um a washington dc based firm called uh, om van sweden and that is their first uk commission and they created this wonderful kind of sweeping path uh really interesting planting schemes And at the same time, our head gardener was refreshing the Mount Vernon Garden based on new archaeological evidence from the actual Mount Vernon Garden. Uh, And he went over there and came back with some amazing ideas. So we've got these wonderfully refreshed gardens, which sit just next to some quintessential kind of English parkland. So that that juxtaposition is, is really nice. So you've got really formal beds. Historically based uh, plantings, but then just space to kind of walk your dog and relax and just hide away.
0: That's great. And and one of the really good things is that over the last year that you've had a an all-terrain mobility scooter, a tramper available for people to hire to be
3: able to access those if they would normally find walking difficult. How has that gone down? Because we are on the kind of on the side of a hill. Some of our some of our terrain is is a little bit challenging at times, but the tramper just. It just gives that extra bit of freedom um, and certainly our staff and our volunteers have really embraced the idea and they're now champions for the tramper and they, they they really get so excited when somebody books the tramper on the telephone or just sees it just outside the ticket office and said, says, I, I, w- I want to use that if I can.
0: And presumably like um, all attractions, you're changing what's available
3: during the seasons, both outdoors and inside. That's right. So each each year we have... Uh, a number of special, special exhibitions. Some of them we create ourselves from our extensive catalogue of objects. Some are we loan in, we bring in from uh, from this year, the Fashion and Textiles Museum. We've also had uh, Titanic, Marilyn Monroe, um, all manner of great things. Also in the garden as well, the planting kind of reflects that, that seasonality. So right now, daffodils, of course, as you'd expect, towards late May, June, Alliums, I mean, I'm, I'm six foot two and you're quite tall, Neil. Alliums uh, as tall as us. And then, of course, you've got the various kind of vegetable seasonal planting uh, in the Mount Vernon garden as well. So throughout the year, a real kind of uh, colourful palette of things both inside and outside to see.
0: Great. And I would really endorse that it's a fantastic place to go. I'd not heard of it or, or, or been there until we started working with you. And I can really say from... The the two visits that I've made, it's a great place to go to. And thank you very much for joining us, John, to tell us a bit more about it.
3: Uh, Thanks, Neil. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. And I hope to see uh, lots of Tramper users and, of course, lots of visitors uh, throughout the year.
0: Well, that's all we have time for in this episode. But don't forget to keep spreading the word. Join me next time as we find out more about what Lonely Planet describes as walking at its most diverse, spectacular and delicious. Do subscribe, rate or review the podcast, get in touch via the Countryside Mobility Facebook or Twitter pages, or visit countrysidemobility.org. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.